Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another late summer podcast. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke, our Healthcare Director, is with us. Claire, it's great to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. And of course, Robert Craig, the Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Good day, everyone. Well, Good to be back. I appreciate uh, my uh, fellow panelists for uh, uh, carrying the load last week as I was uh, traveling. But um, folks, uh, not much has changed other than, you know, it's just crazy times here. Um, we continue uh, to be in the grips of a pandemic that it just it's it's getting worse. Uh, the 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 news, both nationally and globally, around this variant uh, is it's not good. Um, folks who have been unvaccinated are winding up in our hospitals. Very very sick. Our rates, almost all our counties now in Wisconsin are red, um, and we have very disturbing news out now this week around the seven-day rolling averages in our hospitals, right? We have talked about this, Robert and Claire have talked about how we see the lag uh, between infections and hospitals. And we now have more than nine and 10 of our Wisconsin ICU beds are in use. And uh, very, 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 very rough situation. Claire, usually go to you first for our conversations on COVID. Um, Tough situation going on. And then I want to get your comment on and start the conversation around the Biden uh, administration this week has also announced that we're going to we're going to need a a, a third shot for folks who have Moderna or Pfizer uh, booster, uh, given what's going on. Claire, your thoughts on uh, the current situation? Well, Wisconsin passed an important milestone um, this past week, which is that 50 percent, over 50 percent now, of all Wisconsin residents, not just adults, um, have completed the vaccine series, not just received um, one dose. So either have received the Johnson & Johnson shot or received the double dose of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. Um, So that's an important milestone for Wisconsin. Um, It I think we saw a recent slight uptick in the number of people seeking out vaccines, probably because of the Delta variant, probably because uh, school is starting up soon and parents were feeling the urgency to um, get the vaccine into the arms of their students. because you know schools are starting back up in person in the fall and uh, I'm sure parents are ready to get them out the door, um, but are really concerned about, uh, and rightfully so, about their safety. Uh, so that's progress. Um, the bad news is that um, as everyone here knows, Delta is continuing to spread across the state. Um, all of the the counties in the state are at either the high or very high transmission levels for COVID. So we have to be vigilant in taking uh, care of our uh, our own protections when we're out in public that we're basking, even if we are uh, vaccinated and that we are ramping up the pressure on our unvaccinated friends and family members to, to get the vaccine. Um, it's, it's sort of crunch time now. 
Robert? Well, I think our audience is probably closer, unless they have a medical condition and a doctor has told them not to, closer to 100% vaccinated. Because uh, we know, uh, you know, a lot of the folks who aren't being vaccinated and Donald Trump was had, was sowing more disinformation on the Fox network yesterday. So we have a bizarre situation. We have multiple Republican governors who are trying to run for president and therefore uh, doing awful things. In other words, being bad on COVID and risking kids' lives in particular is somehow considered a political virtue now in the uh, Republican primary, which tells you a whole lot about the new conservative movement and anyone who wants to have bipartisanship with this movement or think that's even possible. But, but I think that the biggest question here is, is that uh, the Biden administration has making two big moves. One move is to withhold uh, and, and take away school funding from states that don't, that, that, outlaw mask mandates in schools, and two, because a large number of nursing home workers have not been vaccinated, despite the fact that a quarter of all deaths, if I'm getting the number right, are, will have been nursing home residents, to use Medicare and Medicaid money, almost every nursing home takes a ton of Medicare and Medicaid money, and say, if you're not fully, if you don't have a vaccine mandate, you're not fully vaccinated, you will not get federal Medicare and Medicaid money if you're a nursing home, which will force 100%. So that is the first really broad sweeping mandate. And that'll even be big enough to have an impact on vaccination rates. There's so many long-term care workers. So that is a welcome uh, backbone from the Biden administration. But the bigger question, a huge ethical question is the announcement of the booster shots for Pfizer or Moderna after eight months. And the, you know, there is evidence it's more in Israel than here because we don't collect as good data as Israel. Go figure about our public health infrastructure. Uh, but but it, there's some here that it, after a while, loses begins to lose its effectiveness in terms of preventing the original infection, where you go from 90 to 70 to 50%, which is still higher than a lot of years of flu vaccines, actually. Um, bioethicists have pushed back on two grounds. Uh, number one, uh, the bigger concern is, is that we're not vaccinating the rest of the world and where the Biden administration, uh, and that's a horrible equity issue, but it also will continue to breed variants. The Delta variant came from India, where we are, where there is not enough vaccination and it'll come from a lot of places around the world. Then there's the equity issue of whether, whether you live in a poor country you should decide whether you live or die at which we ought to be as progressives equally motivated by. So if we go and do millions of new shots for the booster, both what's the ethics of that and are we actually harming ourselves because we're breeding variants around the world. But here's what some ethicists are saying. They're saying that the evidence they have now indicates that you're more likely to get COVID, but they do not have the evidence that there are studies underway that it actually increases serious illness or hospitalization later. So having a blanket, everyone do it in eight months, probably is an overreaction and political. What we probably should have done is simply did it for people who are vulnerable, people with immune deficiencies, uh, people who, um, who, are, who, are, who are called, you know, the, the very elderly, which is 80 and over, um, other groups, people who've had uh, organ transplants, have certain chronic diseases that lower your immunity, etc., 
So it's real questionable. And here's the thing about what's happening around the world. Yes, the Biden administration should be credited for reversing uh, four decades of American policy and coming out for suspending the patent rights of the pharmaceutical companies. You can be manufactured the vaccines at a low cost and in, in low-income countries, but it's stuck at the WTO, and it is far from clear. Germany, last I read, we've had Tabito Chow on the show talking about it from people's action. Germany's the one blocking it, but are we using our political capital as a country to make sure that happens? The amount of we're donating is insignificant as a drop in the bucket compared to the need, compared to the billions of people who need to be vaccinated around the world, or this virus will continue to, uh, to take off, and people... Who, who have no choice other than being poor are going to needlessly die, and they're majority black and brown people, if you know the way the economics of the world economy are set up. So, Claire, before we go to break, I wanted to just get your thoughts. There is a real effort uh, from conservatives, particularly nationally, but also in this state, to really focus on schools right now and focus on a lot of these school policies. In fact, I was having a conversation yesterday with someone who's been working on the national effort around Build Back Better and, and just the infrastructure bills. And they said they're shocked at the lack of sort of organized effort to sort of, um, you know, go after, you know, organized against the infrastructure bills and that a lot of folks nationally in the right and conservatives are going after schools right now around masking requirements. Your thoughts as a former uh, school board member? I am always, always shocked at um, at how much um, conservatives and in particular Republicans continue to attack the public school system in this country and the level at which um, a, a lot of politicians are willing to sacrifice the uh, health and um, the sort of academic integrity of children and focusing on um, you know, not allowing uh, vaccine mandates and not allowing mask mandates in schools is just another example of that. But I think it is a more egregious and harmful um, example of that trend. Uh, I know we have to go to break, but we can keep talking about this after that. Well, and with that, we're going to take our first break here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. We are extraordinarily active on social media. I want to encourage you, if you're just hearing us on the radio, you can find us on Facebook. We're very active on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, but uh, please uh, follow us there and also consider joining one of our organizing co-ops. And you can get more information about that at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Claire, before we transition, I wanted to give you one final opportunity to talk just a little bit more about, you had been talking about the the school board, the school situation where we've got a clear effort by conservatives to focus on schools and for some reason, kids and not having mask mandates. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, Sorry, this, I don't know why it's taking me a moment to gather my thoughts on this because um, there's, there's just so much to say. So I would say one, I continue to be surprised that so many people are willing to send their children to school when they are younger than 
the um, authorized age for vaccinations and that school districts are um, willing to have all of their, their students in person. And I'm sure it's a more nuanced discussion than I'm offering right now, right? But I'm thinking about if I were, if I were back in the school board, I, I think I'd be thinking about uh, differently the population of students who are younger than the um, age eligibility for vaccines and the population of students that are older. And that uh, I would be much more comfortable with having vaccinated students um, who are over the eligibility age in the building, um, eating lunch inside, especially once the weather gets cold than having, say, kindergarten age children who are not eligible for the vaccine yet, uh, even if there is masking requirements, you know, taking them all off at the same time to eat inside at their desks and things like that. Um, we do know, however, um, and now granted this is pre sort of Delta variant days, we do know that masking requirements in schools are really effective. Um, they're not going to um, they're not going to stop there being any COVID spread in school buildings, um, but they are tremendously effective at at least, again, pre-Delta days um, from turning schools into super spreader events. And when you, we see that there are not masking requirements, there's just a tremendous, tremendous amount of evidence that without those masking requirements, schools will turn into super spreaders and they will turn into super spreaders uh, sites immediately, I mean, like within the first few days of, of school, um, especially with this new Delta variant. And I would not be surprised if we see that happen pretty quickly in parts of the state and Wisconsin in August and September, where the schools are not requiring uh, masks. And they're, and they're such an easy thing. I mean, kids are resilient. I think as adults, we sometimes want, we, we forget, or I don't know if it's like about coddling children or thinking that they're more fragile than they are, but kids are really, really resilient. And if we don't make masking a big deal, they won't make masking a big deal and they'll just wear it. We forget sometimes kids are resilient. Well, look, we're listeners, we're going to continue to track both COVID, but also this debate uh, that is uh, going to continue on in our schools. But we need to switch topics. Um, our listeners know we have been very, very much supportive of the infrastructure bills that are moving. And by that, it was the both the bipartisan bill that passed the Senate, but also the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill that has a lot of the things that we care deeply about. Um, and we wanted to get an update from Robert on, particularly Robert, I want to get you to uh, give us an update on the politics of this. Uh, what is the latest on what we're hearing that's going on at, uh, at, in Congress in terms of the, you know, we know that there's a real uh, debate going on here between the moderates uh, and the progressives within the Democratic Party. Robert? Well, we're trying to pass, if we were to do the Build Back Better agenda, as currently constituted, which is the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill, it'll be New Deal level or above, and arguably above if you add the first plank that's already been passed, the American Rescue Plan. So it's going to be hard. It would be hard to pass something like this at any period in American history, no matter how close the margins. But the margins are very close. Uh, with two, um, one depart two departures from the House of Representatives, we have a three-vote 
majority at the moment. Because special elections would not replace those representatives. And it's 50-50 in the Senate, as everyone knows. And therefore, we need a, more, a near unanimous Democratic Party. And we also have a Democratic Party that is far more diverse. The Republican Party has been taken over entirely by a radical right element that, uh, quite frankly, doesn't want to govern. And it, currently, its political strategy is culture wars. That's why it doesn't care what it does to kids, right, in terms of their safety or, or to everyone else in the pandemic. It's why it cares about nothing uh, and why it's not focused on Build Back Better, Matt, as you pointed out at the beginning, because they've moved from their idea of mobilization against the ACA, the old Tea Party, to a totally different theory of the case. Uh, to mobilize their base. And here's the problem. So therefore, the Democratic Party is an uneasy coalition. We'd be more than one party if this is a parliamentary system. Between the moderates, a lot of them are conservative in earlier ages, okay? And they're Republicans. And then we have Democratic Socialists on the other end, the whole spectrum of Joe Manchin to Bernie Sanders or AOC to, to, to uh, Kirsten Cinema, And Progressives are better organized than in 50 years. They're, they're better numbers. And they made it very clear that they will not vote for the bipartisan package, which doesn't do nearly enough and actually probably makes climate change worse, but does do some needed infrastructure repairs and some things that are out. But overall, it's a 1960s package, not a 21st century package, and it's too small. And why uh, reading it's in the $3.5 trillion package, which is a lot of great overdue things in the U.S. Well, the progressives made it clear this has to be a two-track strategy, and the White House and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are with them on this because they know they can't lose those progressive votes. But now the moderates are striking back, and there are 10 moderates who signed a letter in the House saying that they will not vote for the reconciliation package um, if we don't immediately move the bipartisan package. Progressives have been, and then move it to the White House and it's signed first, then they'll consider it, but they won't make any promises. Progressives say, and I agree, and this is something, progressives have been rolled for decades. Think about the ACA. Think about the whole Clinton administration. Think about uh, the bank bailout without bailing out people in, uh, in, in early Obama administration. And progressives are standing up. And so it, it, we're a bit of a standstill, except the, mo except the progressives have the high cards here. They're just not going to act, and they're being clear about it. And the moderates can decide whether they want to be the ones that block everything, because uh, that's not going to help their precious reelections in their purple districts with their outmoded theories of how you win elections. And so we're just going to have to stand firm, and we are. But remember, public pressure matters a lot, and people need to be involved and engaged because if we're going to replace the big money that's behind the Joe Manchins and these conservative Democrats of the world, because they raise big money, the same interests that fund Republicans, only thing that balances that is the public voice, a unified outside game for progressive activists and organizations. And we have till October, we need to keep the pressure on everyone. But there's a pathway to win. I'd say we're more likely than not to win right now. And if we do that, it's going to be one of the great legislative accomplishments in American history to do this with margins this close in a party this, this ununified ideologically. And Claire, uh, Robert mentioned this idea that we need to, um, we need to continue to keep the pressure on. Uh, you were part of helping organize an event uh, that we're doing on Friday to keep Keep the public pressure on, show that there is big support for these uh, two infrastructure packages, right? And uh, 
if you could enlighten our listeners a little bit, particularly from the healthcare and care end in the event that uh, we're doing this week on Friday here in Milwaukee uh, in support of this. Yes, so this will uh, almost surely be happening right as or will have just happened by the time you listen to this podcast. Uh, but the one of our national partners, um, an organization called Protect Our Care, which is um, a healthcare advocacy group, is running a, a national bus tour where they're driving coast to coast in a big bus, um, making stops along the way in various states, talking about the importance of healthcare affordability and and uh, in particular about lowering prescription drug costs. And one of the big, what we call pay-fors, meaning how you're going to pay for things in the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill that's being debated in Congress right now, um, is uh, using Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices on behalf of the government and on behalf of people with Medicare, and then sort of extending those lower prices and costs savings to other types of folks. But of course, if Medicare pays a lot less for drugs, and they're, I think, the single biggest buyer purchaser of drugs um, in the country, then that saves the government a lot of money and brings more affordable medicines to people. Um, and so that's an important part of this plan, because it means all of those savings can be spent on the other sort of healthcare investments like Medicare expansion in the budget reconciliation process. So on Friday, we're having events in Madison and in Milwaukee talking about the importance of lowering drug prices and in general, more affordable health care, sort of using this national bus tour as a hook. Well, folks, please uh, don't don't be afraid to even call, right? Call our Democratic Congress members, support, encourage them, thank them for supporting this, backing this. Make sure Ron Kind hears from you. We Sure, yeah, we all talked about that last week as retirement, but uh, that could be a wonderful retirement package, uh, a yes vote on the 3.5 from Ron Kind. With that, folks, we got to take a break. We're going to talk about redistricting, elections, when we get back here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Welcome back the battleground wisconsin for citizen action you can find us at citizenactionwi.org we are about to be joined by sachin Chetta from the fair elections project here in wisconsin it's also a citizen action co-op member but before we're joined by sachin robert just to put the conversation we're about to have with sachin in context uh enlighten our listeners about uh just how bad it is here in wisconsin uh in terms of our actual access to democracy, uh, given our gerrymandered in the state of Wisconsin? Look, we know we have a very educated uh, audience and one that follows the news closely and uh, that listens to Battleground Wisconsin and that we're a fact-based audience, unlike the opposition party, the threat to democracy. So factually, it's even worse than many of you think, uh, though some of our audience even probably know this data, the Harvard University has something called the Electoral Integrity Project, Matt, and they've been, since 2012, they've been measuring the quality worldwide of elections, and they have a 100-point scale. So, and they include states. So states are looked at as if they're countries and compared for the quality of their democracy. And Wisconsin is the worst in the United States 
it gets a 23 score out of 100, which puts us on a par with Jordan, Bahrain, and Congo. So those are weak democracies. They are not authoritarian countries. And just so you don't think it's only us, but we're by far the worst, 23, it jumps up to 31 out of 100 for Alabama, 32 for North Carolina, 37 for Michigan, 33 for Ohio, 35 for Texas, 37 for Florida, and Georgia, all over the news, 39 out of 100, much better than us. And to give you an idea, the 30s would give you Hungary, which is considered a quasi-authoritarian country, Turkey, the same, and Syria, of all places. So Wisconsin's worse than Hungary, Turkey, and Syria, because it's way lower, 10 points lower. So objectively speaking, it's really bad. And that's why what we're going to talk about, Matt, with our next guest, Sachin Chetta, and the redistricting process is so important because that is a great deal of it, is these legislative maps that were with our money, with outside expensive Republican lawyers, gerrymandered to never, ever lose majority for the Republicans, no matter how big the landslide for Democrats. And to, to do that with a face, straight face of all democracy, it is the modern Republican Party. And this is the thing to all of you folks, there's not many battleground Wisconsin listeners who think there's a big bipartisan solution to everything. That's the people you're supposed to make bipartisan solutions with, the people that actually have a theory that they want to have minority rule and undermine democracy. And they're very happy. You'll notice they're not even a shame about it. Does Robin Voss and, and LeMahieu, the Senate majority, or do they act like they don't really represent all the people and act with any kind of attempt to govern for the majority? No, of course not. All right. And now we are very fortunate to be joined by Sachin Chetta. And again, Sachin is uh, executive director of the Fair Elections Project. Sachin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here, as always. Well, well, we're thrilled to have you, and we love that you are an expert in this area, have been tracking this for years as, as uh, the executive director of Fair Elections Project. We're also really happy that you're also a member uh, of Citizen Action's, multiple member of Citizen Action's co-op. We appreciate that. But tell our listeners, Sachin, give us an update. There's been a lot of news this week about redistricting, especially after uh, the, the new uh, census data came out. So give our listeners a quick update. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I'm joined by Millie and Dalton, my dogs, and you'll just have to enjoy the COVID style background noise that we've all come to expect. Um, so as, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, the redistricting process for 2022 has kicked off in earnest, uh, a lot of things happened in the last week. Uh, the one big thing being that the census uh, from last year, the 2020 census, has now given states the data that they need to actually draw the maps all the way down to kind of the neighborhood lines. So having that data census tracked by census tract, having the demographic data to make sure that people of color can be adequately represented under the Voting Rights Act, these are all kind of critical components to actually getting to draw the maps. And you know, because we have local elections in the spring and we have legislative and congressional elections in the fall, as well as the statewide elections, uh, we really need to get these maps drawn, right? So this is a little later in the process than normal because of COVID and because some of the shenanigans that the Trump administration tried to pull, uh, but the Biden administration worked hard to get this data to us a little sooner than expected. And we're gonna ask localities and the state to move forward really quickly. Uh, so then the first lawsuit was filed. And just to be clear, this lawsuit was filed on behalf of a series of individual citizen plaintiffs in Wisconsin, but it's really the lawsuit 
from the National Democratic Party. So this is not like the progressive activists or the good government groups. Uh, I think their lawsuit will be coming in the coming uh, days and weeks. Um, uh, the Republicans have also now uh, filed to intervene. So basically everyone is just starting to position themselves in the litigation. But the important thing to note is that I think that the courts will really give the legislature and localities time to draw the maps. And the really big news is that the Republicans are actually asking for public input this time. And this is really important on a number of different levels. The, the, the drawing in 2011 that resulted in the most rigged map in modern American history that we have here in Wisconsin um, was really just drawn in secret. And there was a lot of information about how they drew those maps and what the result of that drawing was that didn't come out for years and years because the then Republican majority and the leaders uh, really tried to hide that information. And it took a lot of effort to make that information public. Um, this time they aren't trying to do that as much. Now they're probably still drawing some maps in secret, but they at least have the veneer of asking for public input and the input that they receive is going to be public record. So along with the Governor's People's Maps Commission, which has been running a really transparent process, there will be a lot of data out there for us to kind of judge the Republican map, to judge the People's Maps Commission map, and to judge any other maps that people submit. And that's really important because if we get a map that the governor can sign, we'll be able to see it and know that it's fair enough for the governor to sign, which is something that Speaker Voss claims he wants to do. I, I don't know that I trust him. Um, you know, people say trust and verify. In this case, it's we don't really trust him, but we can verify what he's going to uh, what he's going to do. But then, if it does end up going to court, uh, the court will have a lot of data. Uh, both federal courts and state courts will have a lot of data to look at to see you know who's really uh, living up to the promises that they've, they've made to the public. So you know, if the Republicans get a bunch of input from the public that says draw a fair map, and then they draw a really rigged map, that's going to put them in a much tougher litigation uh, posture. So we're really still hopeful, uh, the way this is all shaking out, that we will get much fairer maps uh, in Wisconsin in 2022. Uh, obviously, having uh, you know a split party control between the legislature and the governor's office is the greatest factor to make that happen. Um, and so we're appreciative that we've got a, a governor, uh, not from a partisan standpoint, but from a, from a nonpartisan standpoint, that we've got a governor of a different party uh, so that we can actually have uh, an opportunity to get to fair maps and not just have one party control the process uh, like uh, is the case in most states across the country. Um, so that's kind of my update. We have a lot that's going to happen over the coming uh, couple of months, and uh, I really appreciate the chance to come talk about it. Yeah, uh, Claire, you get the first question. Thanks. Um, there's been a lot of talk and uh, sort of organizing the past several months about the People's Map Commission and um, sort of everybody designing their maps and submitting them and yada, yada, yada. I know you said the Republicans are actually seeking public input this time, but do you have um, a sense of, you know, how seriously the activities that we've already done, like people designing their own maps and submitting them is being taken? And um, do you think that that will, will actually be taken into consideration by the folks drawing these maps? Yeah, so I think it's all incredibly critical. And one of the things that we constantly talk about, and frankly, the lawyers talk about as well, so not just the activists, is that having the Fair Maps Coalition out there, having hundreds, if not thousands of citizens who are participating in this process, not only by drawing maps and submitting comments to the People's Maps Commission, but submitting comments about the proposed 
rule to rig the maps that went to the state Supreme Court and participated in hearings and public education events all over the state. It has really changed the character of this debate and it has changed the likelihood of what information both the legislature and the court is going to be forced to consider. And it's made a really big difference. We aren't stopping asking people for help. Like we really need the citizenry of Wisconsin, members of Citizen Action and folks all over the state to really stay engaged and involved. Um, a lot of you have already submitted those comments and submitted maps. There's gonna be another wave of that where uh, from September 1st to October 15th, the legislature is gonna be taking comments. So we're gonna be sending out instructions on how to, to provide your input there. We need as much input as possible in that process. Then we're gonna be having a lobby day at the end of September on September 27th. And we need citizens to uh, participate in that both in person in Madison and virtually. Um, so it really is critical, and, and I think the litigators will tell us over and over again that, you know, you can't just fight these lawsuits in a vacuum, right, that these all these lawsuits happen in the real world. Uh, courts do see what is happening in the community. They're interested in the direction of the law and the direction of where the people stand. That doesn't mean they're an entirely political branch, but obviously we've seen both the state Supreme Court and the US Supreme Court become increasingly political. So we really do need to keep people engaged and it has made a difference in the process so far and it will continue to make a difference. And in our real world, we have to take breaks for commercials. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, your citizen action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking with Suchin Chetta. Suchin is the Executive Director, the Fair Elections Project. Robert, you have the next question for Sachin. So Sachin, I wanna lay out for our listeners kind of where we are, what the state of play is, and have you let me know where I'm wrong, and especially where I'm wrong, but if you agree with things, that's fine too. Um, we have this lawsuit by Mark Elias, the, the very well-known Democratic national lawyer, um, who's done a lot of these kind of cases. And he's seeking, he's saying basically, the lawsuit is basically saying, look, there's going to be a, a deadlock between the governor and the legislature. We should just take this to court. So in other words, let's go and redistrict and let's not uh, pretend. Um, the Republicans, on the other hand, and they're intervene, trying to intervene in this lawsuit, you've mentioned there'll be others, uh, clearly want to delay out the process. It's my opinion, given that they're the authors of the gerrymandered maps in the first place. It was part of a national Republican strategy. And if anything, Republicans have become more extreme in their attacks upon democracy since 2011, that they want to do it again. Uh, and it's a question of whether we can stop them. And they're looking for end arounds, and they probably have various strategies and theories of the case. So what happens now on this first lawsuit, not knowing what the good government groups, what their suit may look like, if, if it's a coming session, I, I certainly take your word for it as someone who's practiced very closely. But in this case, we know it's going to Justice Peterson, James Peterson, who is a Obama appointed federal judge and has been excellent on the citizen action, one Wisconsin now lawsuit, which both uh, was successful on uh, early voting, but is still before his court is remanded back on discriminatory aspects of photo ID. Uh, but then even if he rules in favor, it would go to a three-judge panel led by Diane Sykes, former Wisconsin State Supreme Court uh, person who is a well-known conservative. And that's a very conservative circuit now. And so it might well be two Republican uh, appointees and Judge Peterson. 
but the question is, um, I, I mean, we probably need uh, good, good court decisions, but the challenge is, is that just as the right has been rigging election maps, they've been rigging judiciary, and they've packed the, both the circuit we're in, the federal circuit, and the state Supreme Court with conservative, very conservative judges, many of whom will simply rule for the conservative side, regardless of the law, in my opinion. I agree with you entirely that the public role is critical in all decision-making, and courts do take that into account. I don't think there's any doubt whether they admit it or not. And that uh, credit where credit's due, uh, Tony Evers' strategy of having a fair maps coalition and trying to make this a public process is a really good strategy. It, and activists have been doing a great job. You're right, they need to continue, Session. But uh, in addition to that, you know, the Republicans, as you pointed out, uh, starting to try to look transparent, tells you that the strategy is working. So in what I just laid out, Setchen, what would you disagree with? What am I getting wrong? Or what would you refine or explain better? So I, without, Robert, that's all, I think, mostly right on. I, I guess one thing I'd say is that it felt like you were, and I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I think you were trying to make it sound that it's a little more hopeless than I actually think it is in these courts. And I guess one example I would really point to is that uh, we had a panel, uh, a three judge panel in the Whitford case that was two Republican presidential appointees and one Democratic presidential appointee, uh, again, in the Western district, uh, but judges came from Green Bay and from Indiana and from, from Madison. And we won that case. And, and that three judge panel declared that these maps were unconstitutional. They were eventually overruled by the state, by the US Supreme Court, not in the US Supreme Court saying that the maps were uh, that, that the maps weren't rigged, but just that there isn't a federal uh, um, cause of action that they can take around partisan gerrymandering. And that was a very political decision at the, at the U.S. Supreme Court. It was an unfortunate decision. It, it probably got the law wrong, but, but it, it's the reality that we have to live in today. So what I'd say is that, yes, look, Diane Sykes is going to appoint the three-judge panel. Um, there's not actually two steps. It's not that it goes to uh, the a one judge federal court and then to a three judge panel. She she will fairly quickly impanel a three judge panel that will include most likely, although she doesn't have to do it exactly this way, but most likely a judge from the Western District of, of, of Wisconsin, a judge from the Eastern District of Wisconsin, and then a appellate judge from the Seventh Circuit that will likely be from another state. Um, but she doesn't have to do it exactly like that. She can really, I think, pick any three three uh, federal judges from the Seventh Circuit. What I'll say is that they, at, at the circuit level, it's still less partisan than it is at the US Supreme Court. It's still less partisan than it is at the state Supreme Court. Those judges uh, are uh, by and large more uh, concerned with the law, more honorable. Um, and again, we, we were able to win with a, with, a, with a two Republican judge panel in 2016. And I, I think that we'll get a fair shot in the Seventh Circuit. Uh, on however the cases move forward. The other point that you made, I think that's important is that the Republicans do want to delay this process because they wanna compress the litigation timeline. I'm not sure that I'm 100% convinced that the Republicans won't put a map in front of Tony Evers that he can sign. And what I mean by that is, I don't think they're gonna put a 50-50 fair map, a competitive map in front of Tony Evers. But if the map they put in front of Tony Evers is significantly less gerrymandered, it's still probably in most election scenarios guarantees a Republican majority, but a much smaller Republican majority. I think there's a, a choice that the governor's gonna have to make about whether he signs that map or not. And that's gonna be an open question. But if it does go to court, um, in the federal courts, I think we'll get a fair shake. There's a lot of case law 
around the Voting Rights Act and, and how those cases are litigated and what the standards are. Uh, and, and judges, by and large, federal judges follow those, those rules. Now, the state Supreme Court's obviously a different story. We have a much more politicized body. Um, you've got one conservative judge who has shown himself to be willing to go off the reservation on some issues. And frankly, on other issues, now you have uh, a couple other judges moving in the other direction. We won at the state Supreme Court on the rigging the rule to consider maps um, pretty, uh, pretty convincingly. The actual final vote was unanimous. I don't think the actual underlying vote wasn't unanimous, but I think it was probably 5-2 in our favor. And so what that means is there are some process questions that, that cut in our favor around map drawing. And you know, if we continue to do the work to show what the people of Wisconsin want, to put fair maps out there to compare themselves against rig maps, we have a chance to win this thing and get much fairer maps for the people of Wisconsin. And let me just talk about for a minute, if I could, about what the implication of that is. It's not just the map and this is like this, you know, esoteric thing. There are so many issues that the people of Wisconsin speak with one voice on. The vast majority of Wisconsinites want a strong world-class university system and good roads and local schools to be funded and people to get health care through Medicaid expansion and the dark store loophole to be closed. These are things that we have consensus on. A majority of Democrats and a majority of Republicans agree on these issues, but the legislature is completely unresponsive. What we need from a fair map is not just the fair map as the goal, but a fair map that then results in elections that reflect the will of the electorate in how they allocate seats to the legislature. So the legislature is actually politically responsive to the people. Right now, the legislature is only responsive to the leadership of the legislature and to special interests. They're not responsive to the people. And so there's something at stake here, and we've got to keep fighting over the next nine months as these maps are drawn so that we end up with a legislature that is responsive to the will of the people. And I, I really want to focus on that big picture of why we're fighting, not just what we're fighting for, so people understand what's at stake. You're right, of course, that the big picture is why is the legislature doing so many things that are unpopular? That's why. No accountability. But let me ask you a quick follow-up. It seems to me your scenario is fascinating that the Republicans would put a decent map uh, in front of Governor Evers and give him a choice. I assume... Uh, real quick session. They'd only do that if they actually thought there was a chance of a worse map coming through the, the judicial process. It would have to be their read because they're going to get the best maps they can get. I don't, in my opinion, there's no doubt of that. Yeah, that's right. This is all about risk mitigation in their litigation strategy. I'm not a lawyer. I just play one on television and on podcasts. But I think the question is, you know, they, they do clearly realize that just going into a secret map room and forcing confidentiality agreements and slamming a map through, uh, you know, without with only a, a farce of a public hearing and in, you know, a week after these things become public, which are all the things that they did in 2011, they realized they couldn't do that this time because what would happen is we would have a map that was fair and drawn through a transparent and fair process. And then they'd be in court basically arguing for this rigged map against a map that had a lot more credibility. So what they've decided to do is at least have the veneer of public input. Now, is that gonna result in them just drawing the same kind of rigged map? It might. And then they're going to have to go to court and at least they'll have their talking point that they they asked for public input and then what the public wanted was a super rigged Republican map. I think there's another calculation they could make, and I'm not saying they will make this because I'm not in Robin Voss's head, but they make make the calculation that, you know, right now they've got a map that basically guarantees, you know, 60, 61, 62 Republican seats. If they go to the governor and they draw a map that guarantees 54 or 55 Republican seats, he, he's in a tough spot because we might not do better than that. We might do worse than that in court. 
And so if they're smart, they will sacrifice some of their members. Um, and, you know, we'll have to make a choice about is the map fair enough in our encouragement of the governor to sign or veto that map. I think um, that's actually a pretty good scenario to be in, right, that we've made progress, that we're moving in the right direction. You know, there is a, a slight Republican geographic advantage in the state that the Republicans claim that that advantage is massive. You know, it, it's it, it's equivalent to 20 seats. It's really probably more equivalent to two or three seats. Right. Uh, it's about a two percent population density advantage for Republicans. Um, and so a fair map probably does end up in a 50-50 election with uh, you know, 52 or 53 Republican seats. That's, that's a normal circumstance, the way that people are distributed in, in Wisconsin. So we, we're really gonna have to make a judgment uh, when we get to that point um, as activists, what, what our view is. But you know, again, what we're doing is we're holding them to have that process be as transparent as possible so we really can judge whether they're, they're taking people's input seriously and drawing a map that much more reflects the will of the electorate. Well, no judgment here. We got to end. Sachin, really appreciate not only you taking the time to join us today, talk a little bit more about the details, but just your commitment on this issue to be strategic and thoughtful about how we go forward uh, and uh, as a movement uh, over the years on this. Thank you very much for, uh, for for your leadership on this. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Robert, Claire, Matt, and uh, fairelectionsproject.org. Check us out and support us, please. With that, folks, we got to wrap it up. We thank Suchin for joining us. We'll have him on again as this uh, goes down the road. But, uh, folks, we're going to wrap it up. Thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes it happen every week. We'll see you next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin.